0: Okay, Psalm 4 can be found on page 568 in the Bibles from the foyer. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn from my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. Okay. So this one can be found on page 1,238. And this time I will allow you to get there in the right time. Okay. We all there? Okay, finally brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust, like the heathen who heathen who do not know God. And in that this matter no one should do wrong should oh sorry, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, You do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody.
1: Real Christians live to please God. For the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians, Paul has been doing nothing more really than reassuring these baby Christians that they are real Christians, that God has loved them, that he's chosen them, that he's saved them from the coming wrath. He's reassuring them that they are real Christians and for three whole chapters he does not give one command. He doesn't tell them to do anything. Having done that, he now says to them, chapter 4, real Christians live to please God. Verse 1, finally, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living He's not telling them something new. This is not some fine print that comes a few months down the track after they've signed the contract. No, from the beginning they received the gospel of Jesus, what he'd done for them when he died and rose again. And from the beginning they received how to live to please God. Not only have they received it, they've been doing it. We instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. You're real Christians and you're living like it. Still no command, do you see? Now, he says, now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Do you want to please God? Is that your motivation? Some people think, don't they, that Christianity is basically a set of rules. It's a way of life, like a a list of commandments that you could find on the wall and you've got to tick them off. Sometimes we think of Christianity like that, actually. We think it's just some rules we've got to follow and we begin to resent it. But that's not Christianity, is it? Do you see here? It's personal. It's about living in order to please God. And God is a person, a person who loved us, who wants us to please Him, and in His kindness has told us how to please Him. If only it was possible, though, to actually please God. I mean, I I don't even please myself most of the time, I don't live up to my own standards. How could I possibly please God? We think of God, don't we, like a a hard headmaster who's never really pleased, who's always got a scowl on his face. Is he like that? No. God is a father. And you notice here, they are living in order to please God already. God is already pleased with how the Thessalonians are Living. Do you see that? How could that be? Because God is not a headmaster. God is a father, a loving father. And when my small children say, when my small child might come to me with a drawing of a sheep and shows it to me and says, Look, Dad, a sheep, I don't look at it and say to him, Actually, it looks more like a pig. You've done the ears wrong. It's meant to be more fluffy. You've got the right number of legs, but that's about it. Do I say that? No, I'm easily pleased. Because I'm not a headmaster, I'm a father, a loving father. And that is what God is like. Will you never live up to his expectations? Will you never please him? Is that what you think? Paul says, I taught you how to please God, and in fact, you are doing it. Even when we make our weak efforts to please God, even when we make our mistakes trying to please God, God is pleased. Do you believe that? Can you believe that in your heart? When you are patient with someone because you want to please God... God's pleased with that. When you say a word to encourage someone because you want to please God, God is pleased with that. When you pray and your prayers are particularly ordinary, you get distracted three times and you pray about things that are fairly selfish anyway, God is still pleased. He's looking down from heaven at little old you, not doing very well, and he's got a smile on his face. Can you see that? Because the Thessalonians have been Christians for about three months at this point, And they are already living to please God who is a loving Father. How good is that? Can you believe it? There's a challenge here as well, isn't there? You are already living this way. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Imagine my son comes to me with a picture of what he says is a sheep and I am delighted with it. I am over the moon with it. Do you think for a moment he'll walk away having heard me be delighted and say, well, that wasn't worth it, that's enough, I'll just not bother again? No. Can you imagine if a husband bought flowers for his wife and his wife is delighted with them and he walks away saying, well, I won't do that again? once was enough. Does that make sense? No. When you know that the heavenly Father you have is delighted, is pleased with what you do, you want to do it more. Do you see? More and more. And yet so often we think, well, I've done better now than I used to. I'm more patient than I used to. I'll just stay with that now. I actually read the Bible more now than I used to, so that's about enough. I actually pray a little less distractedly than I used to, so that will be enough. God's pleased. I can be mediocre. Paul says, don't be satisfied with mediocrity. Why would you be when you have a heavenly Father who is pleased with your efforts? If it was about ticking a box, obeying some rules on the wall, it would make sense. You've ticked the box. Why try any harder? But we want to please a person. We want to please our heavenly Father, is there an area of your life that you have been simply satisfied with? Satisfied with mediocrity and you really haven't made an effort to please God in that area for ages? What do you want to do about that this week? How could you please God more and more? Real Christians live to please God More and more. But has Paul got something in mind particularly? Is there something particularly, an area of life that we need to please God more and more that is so important that he actually told them in those brief three weeks before he left? That is so important that he told them then and he needs to remind them now. Yes, there are two things. Please God by learning sexual self-control and please God by loving one another. Verse 3, it is God's word will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know At the end of chapter 3, he prayed that they would be holy and blameless. Now he says, chapter 4, verse 3, you should be holified, become holy, sanctified. What does that mean? Avoid sexual immorality. How do you do that? Learn to control your body. Some people think that God is against sex and that if he finds out about it, he'll be very angry, that he's a killjoy. How could that be true? He made sex. So he's in favor of it. And he knows where it is best. He tells you in Genesis 2. Inside a marriage between a man and a woman. So what then does Paul mean by sexual immorality? Well, you can tell from Genesis chapter 2. Sex is to be inside a marriage between a man and a man. And a woman, so sexual immorality is any sort of sexual stimulation outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. So it matters who is involved. If both of you are not married and so you're not married to each other, it's sexual immorality. If one or both of you is married to someone else, then it's sexual immorality. And if you're not man and woman, then it's sexual immorality. It's all sexual stimulation. Intercourse, clearly. Any sort of sexual activity with your body, with your eyes, or with your mind. The other person could be physically there in the room with you or on a computer screen. It's sexual immorality. Because good sex, right sex, is inside a marriage between a man and a woman. Avoid sexual immorality by learning to control your own body. Why? Why does it matter? Paul gives two reasons. It hurts people, it wrongs people, and it wrongs God. Have a look at verse 6 to begin with. And that in this manner no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Some people will tell you, that sex is always an expression of love for the other person. It's the same love, they say. Well, it's striking here, don't you think, that in chapter 3, verse 12, Paul prays about love. In verse 9, in chapter 4, he tells them to love one another. But then in verses 3 to 8, when he talks about sexual immorality, the word love is not mentioned. Do you see love? Love, sexual immorality, is not love, do you see? To commit sexual immorality against someone or with someone is not love. Other people will tell you that whatever you do in the privacy of your own bedroom is no one else's business because it doesn't hurt anyone else. Well, that is a load of rubbish, isn't it? Try telling that to yourself or your partner when you break up. And are in pain over it all. Try telling that to the husband of the person that you're having sex with. Or their children or their parents. Or if you're going out with someone, try imagining telling that to their future spouse when it's not you, which is most certainly on the cards. You're only going out. It hurts someone else. And pornography? Well, it might seem like there's only you and the screen, and there's only one person in the screen, and she wants to do it, you think? But does she? Is there really no pressure on her, no exploitation? She's being paid after all. Why would she do such a job? Pan back from the camera for a moment and try and think who else is there. There are people in the room making the movie, watching what's happening. There are people exploiting the people making the movie. And what is it doing to your brain? And what is it doing to your spouse, whether they know or don't know? What will it mean for your future spouse? Why should you avoid sexual immorality? Because it wrongs others. On top of that, when you're supposed to be pleasing God as one of God's people, it wrongs God. Have a look at verse 6 again. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Verse 6 is a scary verse for every one of us, because every person in this room is a sexual sinner. I am, and you are. Whether it's with your mind or your eyes or your body or all three, you and I are sexual sinners. And so verse 6 is scary. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. How wonderful is it that we wait for Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. He died to be punished for my sexual sin and yours. It has been dealt with. It is gone. There is full forgiveness. How good is that? Do you think that means God doesn't care any more about your sexual sin? That he's no longer not pleased with it? That he's not hurt? That he's not angry? Of course he is. And not just whether you're involved in sexual sin, but to have a look at verse 8. I think this means that if you not just are doing something sexually that's immoral, but if you condone other people doing it, if you change what God has said or reject what God has said, You also are rejecting God. That's the clear implication, isn't it, of verse 8? Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So when Christians or so-called Christians reject what God has said about sexual immorality and want to change what he thinks about sex, they are not rejecting man. They are rejecting God. And we need to see that. And call them on it. Why should we avoid sexual immorality? Because it wrongs other people. And because it wrongs God. How do you please God in this area? If you want to please God with your body and with your brain and with your eyes, what do you do? Verse 3, avoid sexual immorality. How would you do that? Well, you'd avoid situations where you're tempted, wouldn't you? You'd avoid being alone with members of the opposite sex. Or if you're uh, attracted to people of the same sex, avoid being alone with members of the same sex, especially those that you are attracted to. You wouldn't flirt, would you? It's not a game. You'd be careful and sensitive about how you touch other people, even in public, When you're sitting at the lights and that person walks past and you're tempted to take that second lingering look, you wouldn't. And when you're driving your boyfriend or girlfriend home, you'd remember what you learnt when you were learning to drive. You pull up the handbrake, you turn the key and most importantly, you open the door handle and get out. Why is it that sitting in a car is suddenly such an attractive place to be? Because it's tempting. So why not get out of the car? You'd avoid TV shows, wouldn't you, and movies, which you find sexually stimulating. And pornography, which is now so accessible on your laptop and on your mobile phone. Don't play with it. Avoid it is not strong enough, is it? And if you've started, if you're struggling or not struggling, tonight is the night to do something about it. You need to talk to someone. You won't stop without talking to someone about it, or at the very least, check out the website that I have put there on the outline for you. Our sexuality is very powerful, isn't it? And there are temptations everywhere. And the reality is that we do fail, every one of us. And so we can sometimes feel like we are trapped, (coughs) that it's all hopeless. Have you ever felt like that? Well, verse 5, I think, uh, verse 4, sorry, is very encouraging. Did you notice that? Each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Do you see there? You can control your body in a way that is holy and honourable. We think sometimes that it's impossible, don't we? That nothing would prevent us from actually doing what we shouldn't do. A bit like if you're yelling at someone in your home because you are so angry and you just think to yourself, I cannot help but yell at this person. They are so infuriating. And then the doorbell rings. Can you stop when the doorbell rings? Just like that. Because you don't want anyone to hear. If you're looking at something on a screen and someone walks into the room and you are no longer the only person in the room, can you stop? I reckon you could stop just like that as you reach for the button on the display. Yes, we can control our own bodies. We just need to, what does it say? Learn. It takes practice. And if you want to please God, it'll take practice. Practice to learn to do this. And I reckon we should be encouraged because, especially those of us who have been Christians for a while, chances are you have learnt. You have learnt over the years because someone pointed out how to avoid these things like I'm trying to do tonight and you started to put them into practice and God has been helping you to do that and you've learnt to control your body because it is possible to please God. And when God sees you doing that, how does he feel about that? He's pleased. He smiles even though all the other times you might have failed. Isn't that encouraging? It is about things that you see and things that you do, but it's also about relationship, isn't it? And we need to be careful with our relationships. Uh, One of the godmothers of one of our children had been married for 15 years. When she started working with a man who she found inspiring, he was a strong leader in a way that her husband wasn't. And sometime later, on her son's birthday, she told her husband she was leaving him and going off with her colleague. Her colleague was the assistant minister at her church because she was the children's minister at her church. When my wife asked her sometime later, when was it, do you think, that you needed to actually take some action, you needed to intervene so that it didn't get to this point now that she was off with him? Do you know what she said? I think I needed to do something about a year before that day because the relationship had become so strong so intertwined before we started doing anything, that's when I needed to take action. That's what we need to do, isn't it, when we're attracted to someone who we're not married to, maybe not physically attracted, maybe emotionally attracted. We need to be careful. We need to avoid. We need to take action. We need to learn to control our own hearts. And not just avoid here but I think it's an obvious point isn't it that you've got to invest in your own relationships. If you're married invest in a healthy marriage relationship. If you're single invest in healthy friendships. So that you have relationships and don't see this wrong relationship as the answer. There's an even deeper reason I think. If you look at verse 5 why is it that the heathen the pagans Engage in sexual immorality. What does it say there? They do not know God, and so they do not want to please him. What is really going to help you to avoid sexual immorality? What will really help you to learn to control your own body? Knowing God. And when you know God better, you will want to please him more and more. The National Church Life Survey found that amongst those who read their Bible regularly, they are 60% less likely to use pornography, 60% less likely to have sex outside of marriage. Do you need a survey to work that out? No, it was right there in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's obvious. We need to learn to know God better and to want to please God How do you please God more and more? You've got to get to know him more. And when you know him more, you'll please him more and more by avoiding sexual immorality and learning to control your own body. How do you need to do that more and more? Well, finally, of course, there's more to pleasing God, isn't there, than avoiding sexual immorality. The second thing that Paul stresses that he's already told them about is loving one another, verse 9. Now, about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. It's the same pattern here, isn't it? You were instructed to do these things. In fact, since then, God has been teaching you by his spirit, I take it, to love one another throughout that time. Imagine being part of a church like that. Can you imagine a church where people love one another? Of course you can imagine it. You're in one, aren't you? Where people care for each other and serve each other and want the best for each other, speak words to encourage one another, pray for one another? What does he say to a church like that, to a church like ours? Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. I wonder if your love for the other people of our church has grown in the last year. Do you care more about the people here amongst you tonight than you used to? Do you want your love to grow? Is there someone for whom you need to go the extra mile, but you're reluctant to do so because it will cost you? Is there someone for whom you need to love with actions as well as words? Or is there someone you need to love with words as well as actions? Does your love need to grow more and more? more and it needs to be in practical ways have a look again at verse 10 yet we urge you brothers to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life to mind your own business and to work with your hands just as we told you it looks like it's a new point doesn't it something about ambition and work and uh leading a quiet life but it's not a new point it's the same sentence we urge you brothers urge you to do what to love more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, do you see? How is it that the Thessalonians are to love one another more and more? By making it their ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind their own business and to work with their hands, just as we told you. To mind your own business sounds like they're not to be busybodies, they're not to be gossips, but there's no expression or phrase or idiom in Greek like that. We immediately think of gossip, but it really just means mind your own affairs, your needs, your businesses, if you like. Paul is saying, love one another by working. Working with your hands. The Greek idea was that manual labor, working with your hands, was... Not really worth doing. It was below you if you're a spiritual person. But the Bible never thinks that, does it? In Genesis 2, there are two good things to please God for mankind to do. Can you remember? Sex and work. And both of them are in this passage. It's good to work hard, to mind your own affairs, and to work so that you are not dependent On anyone. That's why this is love. Do you see that there? Uh, We urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands. Why? So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. In the New Testament, it's really clear that in God's family, the church, the rich are to love the poor. By providing for them. They're to use the money that God has given them to put bread on the table for the poor people in the church. But here Paul says that the poor are not to be dependent on the rich if they can help it. It seems that some of the poor have joined God's family and expected the rich to provide. I've always wanted not to have to work with my hands, they think, and here are some rich people, and God expects them to put bread on my table. In fact, they've started to do it, and so you beauty, no more work for me. They've become idle. Paul says, you've stopped loving the rich. And poor people are supposed to love the rich. And so get a job so that you are not dependent on anyone. Some people can't work physically. Some people want to work, but there are no jobs to be had. Some people are working but not paid for it by raising children or studying. Some people are retired or rich enough that they don't need to work and so they can spend their time serving others. But if you need to work and you can work, then you should work because you're responsible for your own needs And you should not be dependent on anyone. Now, I've been thinking about this. I don't think we have people in our church who are poor and should have to work, but have instead decided to simply rely on the people who are rich, and the rich people are putting bread on their table. I don't think that's our temptation. But there are some principles here, aren't there? Rich people are to love poor people. And... Poor people are to love rich people, which surprises us, I think. That means that everyone is supposed to love everyone. Young people are supposed to love old people. And old people are supposed to love young people. That might seem obvious, but sometimes we think that one group has an obligation to the other and the other group can depend upon them. You see, let me get a little more pointed. Uh, parents are responsible for providing for their children, aren't they? Provide their food and for their education. But eventually, as the children grow older, children should work to not be dependent on their children. Some children seem to think that the age for that would be about 55, but I think it's closer to 18 don't you think? Yes, there's an obligation to provide, like the rich for the poor, but children are to work so as not to be dependent on their parents. Same principle. At the other end of the spectrum, adult children are to love and to provide for their elderly parents. That's right, isn't it? And we ought to want to do that to please God. What should you do if you're the elderly parent? Should you simply rely on your adult children to provide for you and dig in your heels and stay in your home that is no longer suitable for you to live on? No, says Paul. Everyone is responsible to love everyone in God's family. And so make a plan. Make a plan whilst you're still able to downsize, to move from the very big property which you won't be able to maintain forever to a smaller place in the village near the shops where you can walk to. Make a plan with your finances so that you won't be dependent and you'll be able to provide for yourself because even though your children are responsible to provide for you, even if they want to do it, you want to provide for yourself and not be dependent upon them. You see, there may well be other examples, but they're the ones that come to mind. For some of us, this is a long way away. But I'm asking you to store it away in your brain. Because one day, each of us will need to make these decisions. Real Christians want to please God. And thank God, he's not hard to please. Because he's our heavenly father. Do you believe that? And as a result, do you want to please him more and more? Real Christians please God by learning to control their own bodies. Are you doing that more and more? And real Christians please God by loving even those who ought to help them. Will you do that? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have loved us And that you are our loving Father who is pleased with our weak and stumbling efforts. Help us to believe that. And help us as a result to want to please you more and more. Father, uh, things about sexuality are difficult, hard to understand and deeply personal. Father, help us to believe and love your good plan for us. Help us not to reject your teaching, which would be to reject you. And help us to know how we can avoid sexual immorality and learn to control our own bodies more and more. And Father, we do pray that we would grow in our love for one another more and more and that you'd help us to work out how we're to love all people, even those who we could be dependent upon. And who have a responsibility for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.
0: Amen.